the privilege of meeting you yet. My name is John Huff. I'm one of the lay elders here at Covenant Life. And I would love to have the opportunity afterwards uh, to, to meet you. That would be my privilege. Uh, I would encourage you, if you're visiting with us, to come back next week. It's going to be a special Sunday for Mission 67. And uh, if you're wondering what Mission 67 is, it is our annual missions conference. If you've not already heard that already, based off of Psalm 67, we will have a special guest speaker, Pastor Edgar Aponte. And so we will have that privilege of being able to hear him preach to us. And then if you're visiting, I'd still encourage you to come back two weeks from today when our pastor will be back preaching. Uh, Justin Perry will continue in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let me ask you two questions for you to chew on right now during the sermon. I want you to think about those questions. If you're a note taker, this would be a good thing to jot down. And uh, so I would encourage you to think about these things during the sermon and then to talk about these things after the sermon. So maybe a good lunchtime conversation to have with others. The first question is, what do you consider good preaching? What do you consider good preaching? Surely that is going to have to do with the content and then also the delivery of it. And you say, why are you asking such a question? Well, this is what the passage is going to talk to us about. And then the second question is, why did you accept Christ when others didn't? Why did you accept Christ, assuming you have, when others who were given the same opportunity didn't? As we get into chapter 2, we notice quickly that this is not a change of subject for Paul uh, from what Justin left off with last week in chapter 1. This is a continuation of his thought and of his argument. I want you to look in Scripture, if you will, and see those connections. So you see in chapter 1, Paul gives his philosophy of ministry, that is to preach Christ. So verse 23 says just that, we preach Christ crucified. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In chapter 1, verse 17, Paul talks about what he avoids in his preaching. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And then in chapter two, verse one, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. We see in both passages that Christ is, the, is foolishness to the lost. In chapter one, verse 18, the word of the cross is folly, and folly is just an old-fashioned word for foolishness. It is folly to those who are perishing. Chapter 2, 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to them. In both passages, the preaching of Christ is foolishness to the lost, but it is the power of God to believers. Chapter 1, 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then in chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says that he preaches Christ crucified with plain speech so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And then lastly, I want you to see in these two passages that God is choosing and calling people to himself and giving them the spirit that they might understand spiritual things. In chapter 1, 23 and 24, he says, we preach Christ crucified 
a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So why take the time to highlight all of the similarities between these two passages? I think it is helpful because, and this is really a benefit into preaching through books of the Bible. You could be at a church where one Sunday you're in this text and the next Sunday you parachute into another text and there's value in preaching by all means, all of scripture. But I think there's tremendous benefit when we walk through passages one after another and we allow that to our understanding this week to be helped by what we understood last week. And Paul is making it an argument here. And between what we saw in chapter one and what we'll see today in chapter two, there's really the hinge at the end of chapter one that connects them. And it is the goal that we have this morning in understanding them. Look at the end of chapter one. I want us to see not only what Paul is saying, but why he is saying it. And these verses are are meant to shape our theology. And they do so with a very specific aim. We want to be careful of theology that just puffs puffs us up with knowledge. But rather, theology is meant to be fuel for doxology. That means when we rightly understand what God has said in his word, that leads us to greater worship. At the end of chapter one, do you see Paul mentions, and Justin highlighted this last week, if you were here, two times, Paul says, so that. He's given the purpose of what he's explaining. He says in verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And then in verse 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This idea of boasting is worship. Our goal as we look at God's word this morning, and what I pray is that we would worship him. Where our beliefs are not in line with scripture, may they be changed by the spirit of God. And where they are aligned with scripture, may they be strengthened and may you be built up in your faith that you would rightly worship him more. Please join with me as we pray to that end. Father, we recognize and your word is going to, again this morning, make it crystal clear that we have no power in and of ourselves to accomplish any spiritual change in the life of somebody else. It has got to be you working by your spirit, through your word, and you promise you will do it. And so we ask that you would do so today. We ask that you would cause the natural man who does not have the spirit of God to be brought to faith today, that you would open up blind eyes. We pray for the believer who, like the Corinthians, maybe is young in their faith, And maybe their understanding of how you have brought them to salvation has not yet lined up with scripture. Would you, by your word, conform our thinking to your revealed word? Use this time, we pray, to accomplish what no human individual could ever imagine to do. 
Build up your church, we pray. Save the lost, we pray. Exalt Christ. Help us to do so, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The sermon has only got two points, and they'll be on the screen. If you're a note taker, they'll be there for you. The first is to worship God through preaching, the faithful preaching of Christ crucified. We're going to see that primarily in the first five verses, worshiping God through the faithful preaching of Christ crucified. I asked you this morning, what do you think is good preaching? This morning, while we're here, my wife and our oldest are in Jackson, Tennessee. Uh, Tomorrow is a preview day at Union University where she's considering going to school next year. People tell you they grow up fast and you don't really realize it until they're going to preview day and you realize they grow up fast. And so that's tomorrow. She could have been with us this morning and flown out this afternoon and been there tomorrow with plenty of time for the preview day, but it's not just the university we want to check out. It's the church that she will likely join. So while we're here, they're at Cornerstone Community Church, and when I get the opportunity to talk to her, my daughter, and my wife, I'm going to ask them about the service. And primarily, my concern is not going to be anything aesthetic about the church service, anything... um, I, I want to know about how they worship. And, and we've had the privilege already of knowing some of this, but I want to know about the preaching. What was the preaching like? I wonder what we would think if we heard the Apostle Paul preach. And it may be helpful as we look at these verses to understand there's a certain context that Paul is in when he's talking to the Corinthians. Because rhetoric, and if that's not a familiar word, the art of persuasive speaking was a big deal in Paul's day. Any public speakers who either could not or did not meet these standards culturally were considered inferior. But Paul was not interested in winning any blue ribbons at the state fair for rhetoric. He wasn't flashy. He wasn't a showman. He wasn't an entertainer. But that doesn't mean he was boring. He definitely was not boring. Paul and Barnabas, when they went to Lystra, the pagans there, if you recall, identified him as one of the Greek gods, Hermes. This Greek god was one that supposedly could travel between mortal and divine worlds and herald messages. So when they heard Paul speak, they weren't yawning, right? They weren't dozing off. He wasn't a boring speaker. He wasn't flashy, but they identified him with one who was delivering a message from another world. Paul wasn't trying to impress others when he preached. Look again, and we're going to continually do this. We're going to keep looking at this chapter. So look with me, if you will, in verses 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2. And when I, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul said that he came proclaiming the testimony of God. The testimony of God, another way of saying what God has done for his people through the plan of redemption. It's the gospel. And he did this not with lofty speech, with eloquence. Somebody asked about the passage I was preaching and I was trying to explain to them and I mentioned this word eloquence and I mispronounced it. 
It's like to a T, perfect. Paul rightly saw himself as a herald of good news. He wasn't there as a professional orator trying to give a polished speech to impress an audience. With his massive intellect, think about it, he could have spoken to them in a way that would have left their little Corinthian heads spinning. But the gospel shaped not only the content of his message, but also the delivery of it. John Piper, who has so much to say about preaching, said one thing in particular that has shaped his preaching is this quote from a Puritan, that no man can give the impression that he himself is clever and that Christ is mighty to save. No man can give the impression that he himself is clever and that Christ is mighty to save. The idea behind that is you can only exalt one person. And if you use the opportunity when you speak God's word to exalt yourself, you cannot exalt Christ. And Paul in humility was not a glory thief. And instead he approached this pulpit, I say this pulpit, he approached preaching and put the the desire to keep the spotlight on Christ. In verse two, he said that he desired to know nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. Now, if your kids are like my kids, they like music. The way our house is structured upstairs, we have a a middle room, there's a computer there, and then bedrooms all surround it. And if somebody's playing music on that computer, everybody is gonna hear that music. And they have all kinds of playlists that they enjoy, but every once in a while, somebody will make the mistake of clicking that, you know, that little continuous repeat loop button on Spotify. And no matter how much you like a given song, you do not want to hear that song over and over and over again, right? Is that what Paul's doing here when he says, I desire to know nothing among you except Christ crucified? Is he like a one hit wonder that every verse is just the same thing again and again? Well, no, of course not. Preaching Christ crucified doesn't mean talking about the death of Christ is the only thing you speak of. D.A. Carson wrote a helpful book called The Cross in Christian Ministry. The interns read it each year. He says what he means is that all that Paul does is, and teaches is tied to the cross. He cannot long talk about joy or ethics or fellowship or anything else without tying it to the cross. Paul is cross-centered. This is a warning, though, against preaching what some may call a synagogue sermon. You ever heard that expression before? A synagogue sermon? It's the idea of preaching do's and don'ts and biblical stories and passages, but doing all of this without pointing people to Christ. Christ is the point of all of Scripture. And if he is the point of all of Scripture, he ought to be the point of every sermon. It is more than preaching the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But church, it is not less than that. And it is our desire that on any given Sunday, that somebody could come here for the first time and maybe for the only time. And regardless of what passage of scripture we're in and what we are addressing that's in that passage, because we want to be faithful to the text, that we are always pointing people to Christ, that somebody could not come here and leave and potentially never come back and not hear the gospel proclaimed. There are some that are here today for the first time. 
I don't know if you will be back again. I pray that you will. But whether it is your first time or however many times you have come, I pray that everyone in here would understand the gospel. The fact that you created in God's image, meant to give him glory in Adam, fell into sin. By nature, we are sinners. We deserve God's wrath. The Bible says in Romans that we not only deserve his wrath, but in our sin, we're storing up more wrath for the day of wrath. But that God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, he sent his son who lived a perfect life, the life we were supposed to live and didn't, the life that Adam was supposed to live, he didn't, he failed us as our representative, but we have a new representative and he didn't fail at all. He lived a perfect life. And when he went to the cross, he was the only one who could die as a substitute for us. And that is what he did when he shed his blood and bore the wrath of God on him. And if we end there, that's not such great news. Thank you for dying for me. But now we're, he's just dead, but he's not dead because he rose from the grave and he proved that he has power over death in the grave and that he has eternal life that he can give to us because he is our, our living savior. And that's why we even gather on Sundays on resurrection day. And that those that were born following the spirit of this world can now receive the spirit of God and can understand spiritual things, the gospel, and by faith and trusting in Christ and turning from their sin, they can be made new creatures and they can have eternal life. And this gospel is not just meant for the lost. We don't just preach Christ crucified if there's a visitor here. This gospel is meant to change everything. The way you interact with your spouse this week ought to be shaped by the gospel. The way you parent, the way you work, the way you interact with your neighbors, the gospel speaks to all of this. We see that Paul, it was not only his preaching that wasn't intended to impress, but it was his presence also that wasn't intended to impress. Look in verses three and four. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. He said he preached in much fear and trembling. Those that have preached before can say, like, I can relate to that, right? And uh, everybody knows it, number one phobia, fear of public speaking. Is that what this is? Is Paul just like introverted and you put him up in front of a bunch of people and his knees start knocking? No, that's not it. When Paul thought about the weightiness of the responsibility of preaching, of preaching the oracles of God to image bearers who will spend all of eternity in either heaven or hell, the weightiness of that. There was a gravity to his preaching. As Richard Baxter would say, Paul preached as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. When Paul refers to his weakness, it's not clear what he had in mind. Some speculate that it was a physical condition. If you saw Paul, you would notice there was something physically different about him. May have been his eyesight. What is clear is that his critics picked up on this weakness. In 2 Corinthians 10.10, they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. This may be the first reference to a keyboard warrior. Somebody who, if you're not in person, you just see them writing, you're like, man, this person is powerful. 
And then you meet him, and you're like, that's, that's the same person? That's, that's no, he's weak. But Paul doesn't run from this criticism. He's not trying to earn their approval. He's not trying to look good by appearing smarter than others or better than others. He didn't want the attention on him. He preached in weakness, and he was good with that because it put the attention properly on Christ. He says in verse 5, we have another so that. These so that's are so helpful. They tell us his argument here. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul didn't want it to be about the messenger. He wanted it to be about the message. He would tell them later in 2 Corinthians that we have this treasure in jars of clay. What's the treasure that he has, that we have? It's the gospel. We have this supremely valuable treasure, and yet we have it in something incredibly fragile and weak, like a jar of clay. In order to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I want to give you a couple of thoughts of application before we move on to the second point. For those who preach and for those who listen to preaching. I went through the directory yesterday out of curiosity. I would encourage everybody to constantly go through the directory, pray through the directory. But I went through there and I was looking for people who I have heard preach out of the directory. 23 people. 23 people. I praise God for that, that there are a number of men who can stand in this pulpit and faithfully preach God's word to us. But for everybody, whether you stand up and proclaim Christ in such a manner or not, the reason that people choose churches is oftentimes around the preaching, and rightfully so. And what we do know is we're in a highly transient area. People generally don't come here and then stay here for decades. They move around. And so as you consider, even if the Lord should move you elsewhere, what are you going to look for in the next church you're going to? What, what is Abby and my wife, what are they looking for right now at the church they're at? Well, let's think about the preaching. We see from here that we need to labor to feed the sheep. So that means look for preaching that is going to feed you. To know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified is not an excuse for laziness and sermon prep. Paul said to Timothy, writing to the church there, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor. The ESV uses the word labor. The NASB says those that work hard. And so if you are going to proclaim God's word to people, labor, labor to feed the sheep. Secondly, keep the spotlight on Jesus. Keep the spotlight on Jesus. The desire of anybody who stands up to preach ought not to be at the end that people say, that's a great preacher. But rather that they would say, Christ is a great savior. The pulpit is a dangerous place for an insecure or narcissistic man to be. So rest in Christ, keep the spotlight on him and pray to know even more the freedom of self-forgetfulness. And then lastly, trust in the power of God. And when I say lastly, don't think the sermon's wrapping up, the point's wrapping up. Trust in the power of God. Let us not rely on our own power, our own winsomeness, our own ability to convince or persuade, but rather rely on the power of God. And that leads us to the second point. 
We worship God through the faithful preaching of Christ crucified. And then let us worship God through trusting the powerful working of the Spirit. The powerful working of the Spirit. Really, there are a lot of contrasts where Paul says, not this, but that, not this, but that. We're going to look at a couple of those. Not the wisdom of the world, but the wisdom of God. Paul mentions wisdom three times in the opening verses, and it kind of sounds like he's against wisdom. He says, I did not come with lofty speech or wisdom. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men. And really, that last usage of wisdom helps us understand because he talks about the wisdom of man, or what we would refer to as worldly wisdom. But what is worldly wisdom? It's a question that may have asked even on the heels of last week's sermon, but worldly wisdom, is that like wear your seatbelt on the interstate? No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the way that you look at the world, your worldview. And when you're a believer at conversion, you're given gospel glasses that change the way that you look at the world. And what Paul wants to impart to these Corinthians is spiritual wisdom. The popular speakers of Paul's day were impressive in their speech. Their oratory, their rhetoric, it was impressive, but they were peddling a worldview that was contrary to Scripture. Paul wants to give them a different kind of wisdom. Look at verse 6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. The wisdom that comes from God that is considered wisdom by the mature. And the mature here, this is not a a subset of Christians. It is rather those that have been enlightened by the Spirit to receive the things of God. We'll see later on that many times the Corinthians showed their lack of maturity, but this is a different context here. Paul says in verse 7, he refers to this wisdom as a secret and hidden wisdom which God decreed before the ages, catch that word, these words at the end, he decreed before the ages for our glory, for our glory. So what did God decree before the ages? This is what theologians refer to as lapsarianism, like the decrees of God before the beginning of time and even trying to understand the order of those. We're not going down that route, but if you would like to talk about it afterwards, The plan of redemption. This is best summarized in Ephesians 1. If you'll jump over there with me, Ephesians 1, and look at verses 3 to 9. Let's see the decrees of God before the ages. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. We see here that before the ages, before the foundation of the world, God decreed to choose a people, to adopt them through Christ, 
to secure their redemption through the blood of his son that would provide forgiveness and to make known to them the mystery of his will. This is the secret and hidden wisdom. It's Christ crucified. The wisdom of God is the gospel. And he says, this is for our glory. This amazing news that we rejoice in right now, we've only yet begun to experience what all there is for the Christian. We praise God for his grace in saving us, for how he has changed us, for how he has united us together as a spiritual family. We have so much to thank God for, and yet we have only but tasted of the glory that is to come. Our sanctified imaginations can't even fully comprehend. He says in verse nine, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard. We're back in 1 Corinthians 2. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. He sealed us with his Holy Spirit. He has given us the guarantee of an inheritance until we acquire full possession of it. But this, this was unintelligible to the rulers of the age. To them, they, this was foolishness. They rejected it and they rejected Christ. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, national leaders like Herod Antipas, Pilate, they rejected it, but the church at Corinth accepted it. Why? Why did some hear this wisdom of God and say that's foolishness and others heard it and they received it? Well, Paul's going to answer that question for us as we look at the natural man versus the spiritual man. The natural man and the spiritual man. Verses 10 and 11. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Okay, real easy question for you right now. Who knows your thoughts right now? Okay, Eli, that was a rhetorical question. Thank you. <laughs> Nobody knows what you're thinking except for you and God and then anybody that you reveal that to, anybody that you tell that to. So who knows the thoughts of God? Who knows the depths of God? All that God knows. Who knows that? Well, the Spirit of God knows that. So how could we possibly know that? Well, he has to reveal it to us. And not just in an academic way. That's what happens when the general call of the gospel goes out. People hear these things academically. They understand what you're saying, but they don't accept it. They don't receive it. They don't believe it. Commentator Gordon Fee says that with his next sentence, Paul begins the main point of his argument. The absolute key to understanding God's wisdom lies with the Spirit. That is, humans do not on their own possess the quality that would make it possible to know God. To the natural man, void of the Spirit of God, the preaching of the cross is foolishness. You see that in Acts. Acts 17, the philosophers, when they heard Paul... They called him a babbler, a babbler. Later on in that chapter, those on Mars Hill mocked him. 
He preached, they laughed. Acts 26, when Festus heard Paul, who said that Christ must suffer and rise from the dead, how did Festus respond to him? He said, Paul, you're out of your mind. The rulers of the age didn't understand this. They didn't believe it. Why do we? Look again into the text at verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us. That we might understand. The call to believe in Christ is foolishness unless the Holy Spirit first opens up blind eyes, shines his light, illuminates into the darkness for us to see. If you are trusting in Christ today, don't think you're doing so because of something that was in you that wasn't in somebody else who didn't accept Christ. When you do so, you boast in what you have done, maybe even unintentionally. But this effectual calling of the Holy Spirit, the sovereign grace of God meets our resistance and then overcomes it. The Holy Spirit's the only one who can do this. So we have what we call regeneration, being born again, and faith. And I think it's really important to understand while the two cannot be separated, and while there's not a chronological gap between them, there is a necessity of their order. You may have thought about this before, maybe you haven't. Does regeneration precede faith? Or does faith precede regeneration? And why does it matter? Well, to say that faith preceded regeneration is to say that we came to Christ in our own ability. That there was somehow something in us, some island of righteousness, something that chose Christ, and we were rewarded afterwards with the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's option A. Option B, and it's B for biblical, <laughs> is that the Holy Spirit of God regenerated us. He gave, he removed a heart of stone and he gave us a heart of flesh. And the response to that was faith in Christ. Oh, if we had more time, I would take you into Romans 8, 30 and look at the golden chain of salvation. Jot that down if you would circle back to it later. Romans 8.30 and look at the golden chain of salvation. The only reason that anyone has ever trusted in Christ is because of the Holy Spirit of God doing his sovereign work in their hearts. And then let's look at our final verses, 13 through 16. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ." So Paul circles back to where he started. We cannot fabricate conversions. We preach Christ trusting in the Holy Spirit of God to do the work that no human could possibly do. We can't seal the deal. We can't close the transaction. 
we need God through the Holy Spirit to so work in people's hearts. Spiritual truths can only be understood by spiritual people. And when I say spiritual people, I'm not talking about people who have religion and they would consider themselves spiritual. No, spiritual people as defined by this text are those who have the spirit of God. And they're the only ones who can understand spiritual truths. The natural man is not only, uh, does not only not accept the things of the spirit of God, this passage tells us he can't. So he is both unwilling and he is unable. It's both. It is like the gospel is being spoken in a language that he does not understand. If you'll permit me to illustrate. Car Dieu a tant aimé le monde qu'il a donné son fils unique afin que quiconque croit en lui ne périsse point mais qu'il ait la vie éternelle. Some of you understood that. By the look on some of your faces, you didn't. What, what was that? It was the gospel. It's John 3.16. But it was spoken in a language that you don't understand. You don't have the ears for it. And what God does for people when the gospel is spoken through regeneration, through the Spirit, He gives them ears to hear. And so they don't hear babble, they don't hear foolishness. They hear the voice of God through His Word calling them to trust in Christ. The natural man and the spiritual man. There's a difference between the two, clearly. Paul says that the man with the spirit of God is able to judge spiritual matters. The natural man can't. A natural man can be a far better judge than me about a million things. Just about anything you can think of, I'm sure there's a natural man out there that can be a far better judge of it than I could be. But when he starts saying that Christ crucified is foolishness, he's outside of his lane. He's trying to judge spiritual matters, but he's not a spiritual man. He doesn't have the spirit of God. And by God's grace, we can understand the mind of the Lord because we have been given the mind of Christ. Some closing application for you. What do we do with this truth? How does this change? Should it change? Well, we ought to trust in the power of the spirit of God to bring people to faith in Christ. If that was too long to write down, trust, right? Trust. You can't craft a presentation or arguments so convincingly sufficient to bring dead men to life. It won't happen. We have to trust in the power of the Spirit of God. And then this should lead us to be humble. Sovereign grace is meant to humble us. D.A. Carson said, nothing else will so quickly humble the Corinthians. Endless pretensions to greatness and all the divisiveness, self-centeredness, and lovelessness than the sovereign grace. And then lastly, to worship. To worship. When you understand that you take no credit in your salvation, that it is all because of the work of the Spirit of God in bringing you to faith. It ought to result in profound, deep, fervent worship. I pray that that would be the case. If you're not a believer in Christ, I pray that you would trust in him today. May the Holy Spirit of God so work on your heart to bring you to faith. And if you are a believer, boast in the Lord. Give him all the credit and all the glory for the fact that you are a believer.
Let us pray. Father, we trust that your word has gone out. We thank you for this word that you've given us. What a treasure we have in jars of clay to herald the gospel. Would you do by it what no human individual can possibly do, no matter how earnestly they try? Would you bring people to faith? Would your Holy Spirit so work to draw, effectually call, overcome the resistance, give hearts of flesh that receive the sown seed of the gospel? And Lord, for us who are believers, may we boast in you. May this lead to greater worship. May nothing we do be from the vanity of pride, of self-seeking. May we rightfully put and keep the spotlight on you. May that be evidenced in all of our ministry. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.